We are all disciples, followers, learners, students of something or someone. Always learning, listening, and wanting to either be taught by others or teach others. Jesus calls his followers to be disciples of him above all else and to invite others into his way to make disciples that make disciples. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medina East. Uh, if you're new, if you're a guest, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Thanks for uh, spending some time with us this morning. I also want to say uh, welcome to those of you watching online as well. And so as we get started this morning, um, I want to start by telling you guys a quick story. And so it was about 11 years ago now that me and my wife were first married and we had just bought in our first house. And one of the things that we had ambitions of doing is we decided we wanted to start our very own garden. So not something we'd done before, but we, it was like the first time we owned our own property and we, did, we decided we were gonna go for it and we decided, let's just try and, try and do our own garden. So we go through the whole ordeal, right? We pick out a spot in our backyard where we think there's lots of sun and we get like, we're newly married, we don't have lots, we get like shovels and we're like literally, we're turning over the grass and making it into dirt by hand and we're going through the whole, the whole thing. And then we went to this place called Donzel's Garden Center. If you've ever been there, it's in Akron, Ohio. And we, we bought this rabbit fence thing that we put around it. And we bought this starter garden kit where you have the little seeds and the little things you put it in. You, you start it inside. And then, then we went to the seed section. And we bought like 17 different kinds of things, right? We bought like four different types of tomatoes. And we had strawberries and corn and onions and carrots. And like we had all sorts of things because we had this vision of this utopian garden that we were going to create in our backyard. And so we, we get all the stuff, we plant the things, we, we go through the summer, and by the end of that first summer, I realized that gardening might not actually be my thing, right? So we didn't, we didn't really grow a lot of stuff. Uh, we grew a few things, and so I, I think we had one cantaloupe that grew. We had a handful of tomatoes and this small bowl of strawberries, right? But not, not, a, whole lot, not a whole lot else. And so uh, not exactly the bountiful harvest that we had envisioned, but it was year one, and at that point, we were still fairly optimistic that maybe we would get better at this. And so... So that was year one. Fast forward to year two. It is spring, and I, I go out to my garden to kind of, right, it's, it's spring, it's a new year, I'm going to go out to my garden, I'm going to start working on it again, and I go out there, and I see something that to me is amazing. And what I found was that I, the strawberry plants that I had planted before, the year before, there were about six of them, and this year I went out, and now there were about 20 of them, right? And so the year before, there were all these things I was trying to grow that I could not grow, and then over the winter, somehow I come back. And with no help for me, the gardener, the strawberry plants, well, they have more than doubled. And as much as we like strawberry plants, they had kind of started growing outside of their designated areas, like they were going into the spots we were trying to grow other things. And so we kind of pared them back a little bit, and we had all these leftover pavers from the previous owner. And so we, we built these little like barriers around it to try and like contain them in their little area. And so we go through year two. Crop gets a little bit bigger, because that's the only direction it could go, right? It got a little bit better. Uh, and then fast forward to year number three. It is spring. I go out to work on the garden again, and what do I find? I find like 50 strawberry plants, right? These things, they're, they're, they're just like everywhere. And I'm new to this. I don't really know what's going on. And I just remember thinking, how in the world are these things multiplying so quickly? And so I go online, I start doing some research. And one of the things that I discovered is that, um, so all plants produce seeds, right? So that you can produce more plants. So strawberries, the seeds are the little tiny dots on the outside. Those little tiny things are the seeds. In addition to producing those seeds, strawberry plants also send out these things called runners, which is how they multiply so quickly. And so every year, each plant sends out multiple runners, which turn into new plants, 
which send out multiple runners. And so one of the things that I found online was that one single strawberry plant, when healthy, can produce and support between 30 and 50 more strawberry plants. And so this third spring, when I came out to my garden, my strawberries, well, they had sent runners, multiple runners everywhere, which had turned into more plants, which had sent out runners everywhere, including up and over my barriers into like every corner of my garden. And so this garden, this vision that we had for this well-rounded garden that we were going to have all this food, and it was just going to be like in our backyard, I'm just going to go pick it and eat it, it's going to be all right. Now it's this one giant strawberry patch, and we have more strawberries than we knew what to do with, right? So hold that thought for a moment, and right now we find ourselves in a series called Disciples of Something. And last, uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Steve kicked off this series um, by talking about what he titled it, All the Voices, and it was the idea the fact that all of us, we were all being influenced and shaped by something. He talked about the fact that uh, the question is not, are you being discipled? The question is, by what are you being discipled? Are you allowing the world and its influences and various other things to shape and disciple you, or are you allowing Jesus to do that? And then last week, Pastor Seth walked us through discipleship in the Old Testament, And he talked about the fact that God's mission to reach the world, it doesn't actually have its origins in the New Testament, but that you can actually trace this idea all the way back to the creation narrative. That from the very beginning, God's plan was to send out his image bearers into the world so that they both might know and choose to follow him. Which brings us to today. And so this week, we're going to look at God's plan for discipleship that he lays out in the New Testament. And as we get into this, one of the things I think that we're going to find is that his vision, his plan for discipleship, it actually looks a whole lot like my garden. In the same way that God has created strawberry plants with this innate ability to multiply and to produce copies of themselves, so too every healthy, growing follower of Jesus was created with the ability to produce more healthy, growing followers of Jesus. So if you guys have a Bible with you, I guess I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter four. Matthew chapter four. If you don't have one, there's ones in the seat back in front of you, and we're gonna be on page 785. Uh, and if you're a newer guest, we say this all the time, but if you need a Bible, you can just feel free to take that Bible home with you. You can consider that a gift from us. And so we're gonna be looking at two primary passages today that I kind of think help anchor this discussion on discipleship that we find in the New Testament. And the first one's going to come at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. And then the second one's going to become at the very end of his ministry. So we're going to start at the beginning. So we're going to actually start back in verse 12. We're going to kind of get a running start up to the main, the meat of the passage. So uh, starting back in verse 12, we read this. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near." And so in Matthew 4, what we find is that Jesus is now beginning his public ministry. Right up until this point in his life, we know very little about Jesus and his childhood. 
But here in Matthew 4, we read that Jesus leaves his hometown and he moves to a town called Capernaum. And now he begins to publicly preach for the first time. And so as Jesus launches his ministries, one of the things we find him doing is something I think a lot of us would do if we were launching something new. And well, it's Jesus starts to recruit a team of people to join him in this. So look at what it says next, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him. And so in the section that immediately follows the launch of his public ministry, we find Jesus choosing his first disciples. And one of the things you need to understand about this passage is that discipleship was a common practice in first century Galilee before Jesus comes on the scene. And so this idea, this concept of discipleship, this is not something that originated with or was unique to only Jesus. There are other teachers and other rabbis that we actually know from scripture who had disciples. And so John the Baptist had disciples. We read that. Uh, We read that the Pharisees had disciples. Uh, If you heard of the apostle Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament early on in his pre-Jesus days. Early on, he was discipled by someone. And so a lot of these teachers or rabbis, they all had disciples. And the primary goal behind a rabbi having disciples was so that their particular teachings and ways of life could be spread while they were alive and it would continue on long after they had passed away. And so when a rabbi, when they chose their disciples, what they were really doing was they were choosing their eventual replacements, right? They were choosing the people who would hopefully carry on their legacy to the next generation. So now the Greek word in your Bible for uh, disciple, it simply means student, learner, or pupil. But I don't think that fully captures what would have come into the mind of someone living in the first century when they heard the word disciple. Because if you lived in the first century, and if you were a first century disciple, whether of Jesus or a Pharisee or of anybody else, your sole purpose was to become as much like your rabbi as humanly possible not just to learn from him or study under him, but to become exactly like him. And so as you can tell, right, that is far different than simply being a student of something or sitting in a classroom somewhere, right? I was trying to uh, wrap my brain around what is a a modern example that maybe captures this. And it's hard because I don't think we have any that really do it justice. One of the, it's, it's not quite there, but one of the examples that came to my mind was that it, maybe if you work in the trades, you know what it means to be an apprentice under someone. So maybe if you're like an electrician and you are an apprentice under one, it, it, you're not just sitting in a classroom learning about how circuits work. You're literally following this electrician around learning and watching him to see how he does what he does. And so to be a disciple, it involved this tremendous level of commitment to both study under and to spend a significant amount of time with your rabbi. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, follow me, like in the original call, he literally meant follow me. Like you're going to have to physically follow me around and you're gonna have to watch and you're gonna have to learn and you're gonna have to observe so that you can become 
like me. And because of the incredibly high level of commitment and skill it took to actually become like a rabbi, this was actually something in the first century that was normally reserved for a select few people. This was something that was normally for the best of the best, like the valedictorians of the class. The average person did not get the opportunity to do this. And so one of the things that I think is unique about Jesus and his approach to discipleship is that he opens this up to the common man. So most of us miss this because of the cultural gaps, but the fact that Peter, Andrew, James, and John are fishing, it means that nobody else chose them to be their disciples. It means they didn't make the cut. And so after their basic schooling ended, what did they do? Well, they went back to practice the family trade. They started fishing again. And I think, I think this is why they just drop everything at Jesus's invitation. Or if you've ever read that before, it seems kind of weird. Like he just says, follow me. And then they're just like, they just like get up and go. But I think it's because this is the first time a rabbi thought that they had what it took to actually be like them. So Jesus offers them this pretty unique and rare opportunity, and he looks at him and says, I believe in you. I think you do have what it takes to be like me. And so Jesus says, follow me, and then he tacks on that second part. He says, and I will send you out to fish for people. Some of your translations might say, I will make you fishers of men. Now, while Jesus doesn't really elaborate on this phrase at all here, I think, given the historical context, he's simply reinforcing what it means to be a disciple, that their job is to study under him, to become as much like him as possible, and to spread his teaching and his ways to as many people as they can. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, right? These are the first words that Jesus speaks to his disciples, And so with that as kind of our first anchor point, I want you guys now to turn over with me to Matthew chapter 28. And now that you've seen the first words that Jesus gives to his disciples, now I want you guys to consider the last words that Matthew records to them. So if you're following in the Bibles, uh, in the Pew Bibles, it's page 811. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to start in verse 16. This is a very, very common passage, familiar passage if you've grown up in the church. Starting in verse 16, we read... Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very ends of the age. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I hear Jesus' last words to his disciples, they sure sound an awful lot like his first words to them. Right, Pastor Seth talked about last week this passage. It is famously known as the Great Commission. But I don't think this is the first time the disciples have been given this commission. And I think this is not a new call he is giving them. I think this is a reminder of the original call that he gave to them. And actually, if you understand the geography of this a little bit, I think that becomes even more apparent. And so one of the things I think most of us read over quickly is in verse 16, it says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Right? And so the disciples, they're in Jerusalem. Jesus clearly could have given them this speech 
in Jerusalem. But he doesn't do that. He sends them to a mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. So here's a picture. Uh, This is modern day, but this would be a giant hillside or a mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And why does he send them here? Because this is where it all began. And for the last three years, the majority of Jesus' ministry, it actually happens in a pretty small window surrounding the Sea of Galilee. And so I, I don't know this, right? It doesn't say this, but in my mind, it, it's hard for me not to imagine that, right? Jesus brings them back here. They're overlooking all of this, and he looks at his disciples, and he's like, hey, Peter, do you remember what you were doing and where you were when I first called you? Hey, John, do you, do you remember what you were doing? Do you remember when you were with your dad and I first called you? Do you remember what I invited you into? But I think he is reminding them of what their job description has always been. He is reminding them that it is now their job to pick up the mantle, to spread his teaching and his message and his way of life long after he is gone. Why? Because that's literally what a disciple is designed to do. It's why rabbis had disciples in the first place. And I think Jesus chooses his words pretty carefully, right? I think he, he doesn't say, therefore, go and make converts, right? Just go convince a bunch of people who I am. Didn't say that. He doesn't say, therefore, go and make followers. Like, he's not just trying to be this popular guy that gets a lot of people who are, like, choosing in. He doesn't say, therefore, go and make people who will live moral lives, right? He's not trying to just start this, like, let's, let's just be the moral police. Let's go around and convince everyone, well, you stop doing that and you stop doing like, He's not trying to do any of that. What he does say is he says, therefore, go and make disciples. And again, I think that was a very carefully chosen word. He says, go and make people who will devote their lives to being like me, people who will share in my mission, who will spread my teaching, and who in turn will make more disciples. Again, think strawberry plants. Runner goes out, new plant is created, new runners go out, new plants are created, all the way to the furthest corners of the garden. Right? This is the picture of what Jesus is going to do. He loves not just the disciples, he loves the entire world. And it is not okay in his mind for this thing to stay small. He says, I love the world too much. We got to get this thing out there. And guess what? You're the plan. And the only reason that you and I are probably sitting in this room right now is because for 2,000 years, God has raised up disciples who have faithfully carried on this practice of disciple making. All the way from that first day, until this day. But this is the picture that God lays out in the New Testament. This is his plan to help the world. And so this is kind of the vision of discipleship that Jesus paints for us. Um, there's a couple things I want to do with the rest of our time. There's three questions I want to address today, and then I have two examples of this that I want to share with you. So we'll start with the three questions. It's simply, what does it mean to go and make disciples? Who is this command for? How do you know when you're ready? What does it mean? Who is it for? How do you know when you're ready? Right, and so we'll start with the first one. What does it mean to go and make disciples? And so if you go back to the passage that we just read, we get two, I think, insightful 
parts to this. Uh, in verse 19, it says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you to do, right? Baptizing them, teaching them. Now, I would guess that when most of us think about discipleship, that our minds immediately go to the second one, right? We think about discipleship, we tend to think about taking a believer and teaching them and training them up in the face so that they may mature and grow into a, a, a deeper version of following Jesus, a, a more well-rounded disciple. And discipleship most definitely does include that. It, absolutely. We see an example of this in Acts 2. Uh, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Right? This is the early church. The believers there gathered together. And they have devoted themselves, right? Not, they're not casually reading. They have devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to learning and growing in their ability to be like Jesus. So a major part of discipleship is teaching and training up a believer, 100%. But that's not all it includes. And I think sometimes we tend to miss this because if that were all it included, well, this process, it would have died off in the first century with the original group of disciples, and so when it, when it says they devoted themselves, one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is who is the they and where did they come from, right? Because it's not, it's not just the 11. There's other people there now. So what happened, right? And so if you back up a few verses, we find out exactly what happened. And what we find is we find the apostle Peter sharing the gospel. So back up to verse 38, it says, then Peter replied, repent and be baptized, Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, all whom the Lord God, Lord our God, will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so who is the they in verse 42? Well, it's the 3,000 new believers. It's people who are not following Jesus, but now they are. And so this command to go and make disciples, it actually starts with sharing the gospel with people, with sharing our faith. I think sometimes those of us who have been in church for a while, I think we, we, we tend to either drift from that or maybe lose sight of that. And so we hear this command to go and make disciples, and what do we do? Well, we gather together our believing friends, and we get in this little huddle, and we study the Bible together, which is good, and it's part of it, but it can't be all of it, right? Because as I said before, it's a really good thing. That's not what the original disciples did, because if it was, I don't know how many of us would be here right now. So what does it mean to go and make disciples? Well, it's all of it. It starts with sharing your faith. And it moves to and includes teaching and training up someone in the faith. And so that's what it means to make disciples. Uh, the second question is this, is who is this command for? Who is it for? Is this call to make disciples for every believer? Or is this call only for some believers? Was the Great Commission unique to the apostles? Or was this something that was meant for everyone? And so in order to explain this, I have, uh, I have brought an analogy with me that 
hopefully will be helpful to at least some of you. And so uh, some of you have been very curious in the front. You're like, why is there a chain on the floor? Well, now you're going to find out. And so, uh, so I want you to imagine for a moment that this chain represents a long just series of followers of Jesus, right? Generations of Jesus followers, just one after another. And so uh, we'll start at the beginning, right? So that means this, this right here, this, this is Jesus. You ever wonder what he looked like? Now you know. This is Jesus. And uh, one of the things that we've been talking about, obviously, is Jesus. Well, Jesus had disciples. And so the second link, this, we're going to say this is one of his disciples. He had a lot of them, but this is one. We're going to call this link Andrew. So if we're Andrew and we are a disciple, what is my goal? My job is to become as much like my rabbi as humanly possible. And so there, there's, a, there's a theological aspect to that. And there's, there's a moral aspect to that. But there's also a very practical aspect to that that I want to do the things that my rabbi does. And one of the things that he does is, well, he's got me. He's got disciples. So guess what that means? That means I need to have disciples. And so this next link, this is now Andrew's disciple. And again, what's Andrew's job? What's to be as much like his rabbi as humanly possible? And again, there's a theological part to that. There's a moral part to that. And there's just the practice. I want to do the things that he's doing. And Andrew's disciple, well, he really has two rabbis because he's got Andrew, who's his rabbi, but ultimately, his ultimate rabbi is Jesus. And both of these two, well, they both have disciples. So guess what I need to have? Well, I need to have disciples too. And so you guys can see the original call. You can see it starts to get passed down from one person to the next, from one generation to the next. And so the question I have is if you find yourself somewhere down the line, and you have a version of following Jesus that does not involve making disciples. You think, I don't know, I don't think that's for me, I'm just not sure if that's part of it. If you have a version that doesn't involve making disciples, my question is, where did you get that from? Because it didn't come from Jesus. Because what Jesus passed down, the life that he called his disciples to, well, it involves that. It's something that should be passed down from one generation to the next, and we can go all the way back to the beginning to see his original call. Now, I do think that God has created every one of us unique and in different ways. The Bible teaches that we've all been given different gifts. And some of, so, so some of you, you will have specific giftings of evangelism. Some of you will have specific gifts of teaching. And so how this kind of plays itself out, I think it's going to look a little different for each of you. It might take place in different places. Like some of those things, it's going to be a little bit unique to each of us. But the basic ability to disciple someone, on an individual level, this is not about spiritual gifts. This is not something for the spiritual elite. This is the calling of every true follower of Jesus. And remember, Jesus didn't choose the elite. He chose ordinary men. The Bible actually records a verse where some of the people who were the elite, they are like, their mind is blown by this reality. They don't understand it. Check this out. Acts 4.13, it says, when they, and they is referring to these religious elite, these, like, these top-of-the-line people. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So who is discipleship for? I think it's for Everybody. It's for everyone who would call themselves a follower of Jesus. Which leads us to the third question. How do you know if you're ready? Right? How do you know when you're ready? And as I was thinking about this question in my own life, 
uh, there were two words that just kept coming into my mind over and over and over, and the two words were this. Uh, it was immediately and never, right? Immediately and never. And so on the one hand, I, I think that you are immediately ready to do this, right? If you are a follower of Jesus, that means that you both know and you have accepted the gospel, which means you know enough to help somebody else get at least that. And as we talked about earlier, that's the starting point of discipleship. Right now, obviously, if you are a brand new believer, you will be very limited in the knowledge you have that you have to offer and to share to someone, but you have enough to know that you can lay the foundation of the gospel. You can give that to somebody. And if you have that ability, I don't know why you would restrain or not want to give that to someone. So how do you know when you're ready? I think you're immediately ready to start this process. And at the exact same time, I would answer the question, how do you know if you're ready with, well, you're never ready, right? If the goal is to be just like Jesus, and it is to pass on everything that he has commanded, you will never be fully ready to make disciples, right? Like there's never going to be a point where it's just the day that you wake up and you're just going to be like, I think today is the day. I, you know, I thought about it and I, I now know everything there is about Jesus and uh, I'm ready to do the thing. Like you're just not going to wake up and have that moment because that moment never comes. And so if we wait to be ready, again, I think that for many of us, we're just, we're never going to make disciples. And I do think that ready can sometimes be this excuse that comes into our life where it's like, ah, I just, one more, I need to take one more class on this. I need to, I need to learn one more thing. When, when there's one part of my life, when that, when that eases and then I have a little bit more time, that, right? And, and ready never comes. And I don't know this, but I just, I imagine that if you had asked the first disciples, right, Jesus brings them the mountainside, he sets his immaculate stage, he gives them the speech. I have to, I just imagine that they were just like sitting there just like wide-eyed, like, oh no, like they're just freaked out. They are overwhelmed. I do not think they felt ready in that moment, which I think is why he sends the Holy Spirit because he knew they weren't ready. And I think it's because uh, he ends the Great Commission by saying, surely I am with you always, why does he reassure them in that? Because they needed reassurance because they didn't feel ready for the command that he had just given them. And so how do you know when you're ready? Well, I think you are both immediately ready and you will never be ready. And so I think it's this process where you are continually growing in your own ability to, to love and obey and follow Jesus. And at the same time that you are growing, you are at the same time you are pouring into and you're discipling others. And the more you grow in your own knowledge and obedience, the more you have to offer and the further you can bring along the people who you are pouring into. So those are our three questions. And so with the time that I've remaining, I said I want to give you two examples of how I have seen this play itself out. And the first one's going to be on a massive scale. And then the second one's going to be on a much smaller, more personal scale. So we'll start, we'll start with the mass scale one. And so it was back in the summer of 2006, uh, I had the privilege of going on a mission trip to China. And as part of that just experience, I learned a whole lot about the history of how Christianity has spread there. And one of the things that I learned was that it was in the, back in the late 1940s, there was a, a guy by the name of General Mao or Chairman Mao who took over power in China and he began a systematic purge of all religion. And so here's some of the things that he did. 
Um, he banished all missionaries from the country, right? Kicked them out. They are gone. He nationalized all church property, right? That's your, that's not yours anymore. That's now mine. I'm taking all of these, all these properties. He killed or imprisoned all key leaders in the church, right? All the staff here, all your life group leaders, the people on stage, the volunteers, all of them, like they're, they're all literally, they're gone. He banned Bibles, And he banned all public meetings of Christians with the threat of torture or death, right? And as you can see, man, he started one of the worst persecutions of Christians that the world has ever seen. And I mean, you can imagine in your mind what would happen to the church if all of this was put on you, if all of this happened. Well, 27 years later, Mao's reign ended, and here's what they found happened. They found that the church actually grew from 2 million to 60 million during those 27 years. And that 60 million, that number has more than doubled since then. Let this sink in for a moment, right? No buildings, no marketing, no public meetings. For the most part, no Bibles other than a few that were probably illegally smuggled in. All the key leaders have been removed. Right? This guy did literally everything he could do to exterminate and wipe Christianity off of the map. But there was one thing that he could not remove, that he could not get rid of. And it was the individual disciple. Individual committed believers, each sending out runners that led to new believers who sent out more runners. From 2 million all the way to 60 million in 27 years. And most historians would say that this happened amongst the uneducated, illiterate peasants who never even owned a Bible. Not the best and the brightest, but average people radically committed to this thing called discipleship. And I've shared this so many times and it blows my mind every time I think about it. Right, this is the power of discipleship. So that is obviously, that is the mass scale example. So let me give you uh, a much smaller, much more personal one. And so it was back in 2014, and I took over a college ministry that was connected to the University of Akron. And to be completely honest, I inherited something that was hitting on all cylinders, right? The, the, the guy who was leading this before me, he was a phenomenal leader. He did a great job. It was awesome. And uh, in my mind, the goal was don't screw it up, right? Just don't do something dumb. Don't ruin this thing, because it's going awesome. And so uh, when I took over, there, the one thing that I felt like, man, I, I think we could get a little bit better at is what we're talking about. It was the personal discipleship stuff. So like the program side, all the bigger church things, those were all doing awesome, but I just felt like we could, we could get a little better here. And so I, I rallied together a small group of interns and we came up with this plan where uh, we, we came up with what I'm gonna call starter discipleship material, right? Not, not like exhaustive, it does not uh, encapsulate everything that it means to disciple someone. We came up with what we called a starter program. This this like, number of weeks material, and we said, all right, here's the plan. I'm going to give it to each of you, 
And you're gonna go disciple three to five guys, you're gonna go disciple three to five girls, and the goal is, if they're gonna do that, they have to agree and commit that they will do this with someone else afterwards. And the person they do it with, they have to agree, hey, before you go through this, you have to agree that you're gonna take someone else through this. And we didn't talk about this from stage, we didn't announce it, we just said, hey, we're just gonna try this. We're gonna see what happens. We got nothing to lose, it seems like a biblical thing to do, so let's try it, right? We were kind of winging this. Uh, and so uh, let me just give you a glimpse into what happened. And so one of the guys uh, that I initially started with, his name was Jonathan Wachowski, and I just said, hey, are you ready to do this? And he said, all right, I'm in, I'll do it. And so, uh, so he started discipling some guys. So he discipled Ben Atkins, Matt Warner, Alex Halterman, Roberto Neuenberger, and Steve Bolin. And uh, he did what we asked. Uh, he discipled them, he gave them the challenge, he gave them the charge. But I'm not gonna track every one of these because it would get pretty crazy and complex on the screen, but I'm gonna try and track one of these lines for you. And so one of those guys, Ben Atkins, he finishes, he goes through this thing, and he says, all right, I'm up for the challenge. I, I'm gonna disciple a couple guys too. And so uh, he discipled two guys. He discipled Brennan Earl and Nate Petek. And uh, the cool thing about this is uh, he, and, he, and Nate, he knew Nate fairly well, and so that was a pretty easy one. And they had like, all right, we're gonna do this. Uh, but Brennan, Brennan was someone he didn't know very well. Brennan had, had come to his life group a couple of times, but he was, he was really on the fringes. And uh, Brennan was not a follower of Jesus. Like he was just kind of like a friend had invited him and he's like, ah, I don't know about this thing. And he'd been there a few times. And uh, for whatever reason, God laid it on Ben's heart. He's like, you know, I think I'm going to ask Brennan. And so he goes to Brennan, not a follower of Jesus, and said, hey, would you be willing to let me disciple you? And uh, Brennan does a crazy thing. And Brennan goes, sure, I'll do that. And so uh, Brennan starts meeting with Ben and Nate and they start studying the Bible together and they start going through this thing. And in the middle of the process, Brennan, well, he becomes a follower of Jesus. Partway through, he says, all right, you know what, I'm in. I, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be part of this. And so Brennan goes through the thing, and he finishes, and uh, he's been a believer for a matter of weeks now, and he says, well, I guess this means I'm supposed to start discipling people. Like, I, I don't know a whole lot, but I, I know what Ben just took me through, so I can at least take people through that. And so Brennan, brand new believer, he, well, he grabs some guys, and he starts meeting with Luke Scheffler, Michael Sitko, Sam Sue, Braden Fisher, Matt M., and Bobby Sakey. And all of a sudden, this thing that I had read about in the New Testament, and this thing that I had heard stories about happening in other parts of the world like China, this thing was starting to like actually happen in front of my very eyes. It was the coolest thing in the world to have a front row seat to watch these college students. Again, we were at the University of Akron, we're not like Bible college trained, like they, we were just kind of winging it and figuring it out. It was the coolest thing to watch these college students embrace this idea, start reaching out to their friends who don't know Jesus, start inviting friends that do too and just saying, like, hey, can I, can I pour into you? Can I just, they just, they started doing it. And just like everywhere else, it started to spread. But I want you guys to imagine with me for a moment what would have happened um, if I had uh, talked to Jonathan at that initial meeting and I had said, hey, hey Jonathan, I, I got this idea. Would you be willing to consider this in the, what if Jonathan had said, you know, I just, I just don't know if I'm ready for that. I, I still have all these questions about my own life, and man, I've made a lot of mistakes, and I, I, do, I don't know if I'm ready to do that. But what would have happened if Jonathan had said, you know, I, that sounds great, but I, I'm actually a pre-med major, and uh, I'm super busy. Like, I have tests, and I'm studying like crap. I don't, I don't know when I would have time for that sort of stuff. 
You know what would have happened if Jonathan had said that? None of that would have happened. None of this would have happened. Brennan wouldn't have happened. Not because Jonathan is like some horrible Christian or some sinner, but because Jonathan just just did nothing. Because Jonathan decided he wasn't ready or he, he was too busy. If Jonathan had just done nothing, none of this happens. And the reality is the same thing could be true for me as well. If you were to back up into my life, into the people who have poured into me, my story is actually not about just one person, right? I have like a whole host of people that I can look back on who poured into me in various stages, right? And so if you went back to my childhood, my, I grew up in a phenomenal home. My parents invested in me. I'll give you the name of a lady named Eileen Varga who prayed with me when I first received Jesus. I'll give you the name of a guy named Dan Schwender who was one of my Sunday school teachers as a kid who for whatever reason just just took an interest in me and poured into me. And a uh, cool story, uh, Dan Schwender actually goes to this church, so you can imagine his surprise when I showed up on staff and he was just like, what the heck's going on, right? Like, you fast forward to college, my college years, and when I was in college, a guy named Ron Contour and Brian Conkerman, these guys, they just, they invested in me and they took time out of their own lives and resources and they, they poured into me the things that they had learned about Jesus. They said, I mean, we want to pass this on to you. And they saw things in me that I didn't even see in myself. And they invested, right? And it's hard to, Honestly, not to get emotional when I start talking about these names. And I mean, there's others I could put up there because I don't, I don't know where I would be if it wasn't for these people. I definitely wouldn't be standing on a stage talking to you about Jesus right now. And uh, I probably would have never even met Jonathan. And so it's not just when they poured into me, it's not just me that my life turns out differently, right? It, it's all of this. All of that could have potentially changed. And I think sometimes it's easy to, to consider our little link in the chain and to say, what difference can I make? Right? I'm, not, I'm not Tony. I don't, I'm not eloquent with words. I can't get up and talk in front of a bunch of people. Maybe you think, like, I don't have a platform like that. Like I, discipling one person, what, it's just one person. What difference could it make? But when you understand how discipleship works, right, the reality is it could make an exponential difference. You have no idea the difference it could make. When I started talking to Jonathan, I had no idea where this would go. I don't even know who half these people are. Right, I was texting Brennan this week, like, who, who are these people? I was trying to figure it out so I could put, I had no idea. Neither did Jonathan. Right, this is the power and the potential of discipleship. So I'm going to invite the band back up in a, in a moment. They're going to close this out with a few songs, but uh, a couple questions I just want to leave you guys with um, as we close this out. And the, the first question is this. It's simply who invested in you, right? So in the same way that I just gave you some examples and some names of people who I can look back, right? I can consider the, the chain that is my life and I can say, man, uh, I can name people who poured into me, who invested in me, who got me to this place, who helped me see what it means to follow Jesus, who saw things in me that I, I didn't see in myself. I, I know those people. My guess is that you guys have those too. And so the challenge I want to give you is, is who are those people? And this week, I want you to reach out to them and thank them. 
Right? Maybe that's a phone call. Maybe that's a text message. Maybe, maybe you send them a letter. You ask them to go grab lunch. I don't know what it is. But this week, whatever names just came into your mind, I want you to send them a message and just say thank you. Thanks for investing me. Thanks for telling me about Jesus. Thanks for the way you poured into my life. Now, if you're here today and you are someone who uh, you don't feel like you have any of those, you're just like, you're this lone thing. Maybe you found us online and you just showed up. Maybe you're not following Jesus. If you feel like you are alone in this, man, come find us. Come talk to me afterwards and I want to fix that. If you want to be connected to some other followers of Jesus who can help you make sense of some of this stuff, we would love to get you connected. Please come find us. Right? So question one is who invested in you? And then question two, it's a fairly obvious one. It's who can you start investing in? Right? So if you look back and you see the people who poured into you, the next question I have is, is does the chain stop with you? Or are there people that you are investing in? Is there a legacy that you are leaving to anyone who might come after you? Because as we just talked about, right, you, there, the, the power and the potential that you have seen in, when just one person embraces this idea of disciple-making. And so the question that's been rolling around in my mind this week is not what would happen if one of you decided to do this, but what would happen if all of us decided to embrace this? What if all of us went back to our neighborhoods and back to our places to work and back to the places we go to school? And what if all of us started sending out some runners and started praying, God, would you lead me to maybe some people that you want me to invest into? I don't know what would happen, but I sure want to find out. And I want to encourage you guys to, to join me in this, in this journey. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for today. Uh, thanks for the privilege of just getting to gather together and study your word. God, thank you for the people that you have placed in my life, who have poured into me, who've invested into me, who made, I don't even know, the sacrifices it took to do that. God, I am eternally grateful. So God, right now, I just pray that you would bring names to mind of people that maybe, just maybe, you want us to invest into. Maybe that's someone we need to talk to about Jesus. God, maybe that is someone that we just, they already know you, but man, they just need someone to come along and teach them, show them what it looks like to follow you. God, would you show us those names and would you give us, give us the courage to move? We love you. We thank you. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.